Well, good morning. Welcome. Uh, glad that you are here in the midst of the flu and everything that's going uh, around these days. Uh, it's been kind of brutal out there. How many of you have had the flu at some point in the last week or so? Yeah, quite a number of you. Welcome to all of you that join us online as well. We're really glad uh, that you're with us uh, today. We, uh, we've been in this series called Legacy, Build uh, What Lasts, uh, and we kind of talked last week about a couple of different ideas. One of them is, what if the purpose of your life is not to be the hero, but to make the hero? What if, I mean, we just live in a world where the culture says that the whole purpose of life is to be the hero, but, but what if that's wrong? What, what if the purpose isn't to be the hero, but to make the hero? To be the one that prepares the next generation, the one that will rise up. And then kind of the other thing we talked about is, whose legacy are you? Sometimes we think about, you know, what kind of a legacy am I going to live? But I think it's helpful to think about the people that would look at me and say, you're a part of my legacy, the people that invested in me and made a difference in my life and, and made me who I am. And so uh, we're, we're talking about this whole piece of, of the legacy we want to live. And, and I know sometimes uh, this is the kind of thing that resonates a little with my generation as you uh, kind of get kids out of the house and you begin to think about what does this last leg of my life look like. And um, I, I want to offer to the, those of you that are younger, that you're in the child rearing or you're not even quite there yet, that this morning especially is all about you and actually this whole thing is really about you because the sooner you start the sooner you think about legacy and what you want to live the better you will be at getting to that place it's kind of like investing for retirement it's a whole lot easier if you start when you're 25 than when you're 55 because you can you can get it you can get it done over over time and, and so um, what do you want your legacy to be that's that's kind of the question what, do you do you care about what your legacy is or, or maybe you don't care but I do and I, and I think most people do and more than that parents your children need you to care about what kind of a legacy you leave and I'm not talking about money if you got money to leave to them that that's great but honestly in the in the in the order of importance financial resources is not even where anywhere close to the top of the things that you leave to your children so here's what I know about children and legacy Children are God's greatest gift and our most important legacy. They're the greatest gift that God gives to us apart from our own salvation, and they are the greatest legacy. They are what we truly leave behind. How many of you remember the birth of your child, of your first child? How many remember the birth of the other kids? Yeah, mostly yeah, you do. I, I remember most of it. Uh, my wife still hasn't quite got over the fact that she was laboring overnight and I fell asleep on the couch while she was in labor. Um, so don't bring that up with her because that's a sore subject. And some nurse didn't help me because she came along and put a blanket over me and went, aww. It was like, thanks, you know. Oh. So uh, I, I remember it, we remember it, 30 years later, my oldest is 30 years old, and, and I remember the details when I was awake of, of the birth and, and what happened and what was going on. It was a, it was a life-changing moment. It was a life-changing moment for you, amen? You're not going to get a good night's sleep again for another 10, 15 years. And so it, it changes everything. It's so important. Uh, and and it, it's powerful. There's some powerful theology that happens in the birth of a child. And it's not really the point of the sermon, but I just want to put you onto this. I mean, the idea of the two become one is absolutely captured in your children, right? In Genesis, it talks about the man shall leave his mother and father and be joined to cleave to his wife and the two shall become one. And sometimes people talk about that in the sexual part, which, which is fine. 
fine. That's absolutely a part of it. But where it really becomes uh, fulfilled is when your child is born. And today, we know that a child gets exactly half of your chromosomes and half of your children's chromosomes. It's another one of those things where I look at Scripture and go, how did they know that? That must be a God thing, you know? That, that, that your child is literally half you and half your spouse. Now, you may disagree about which half goes with which one, but... but they're half you and, and, and half the other one. And, and so um, it, it's, it's an important sort of thing that we understand this great gift that, that God ha, has given to us. And, and more than that, children are, are a part of this multi-generational, this intergenerational sort of thing. How many of you have grandchildren? How many of you are like me, you're waiting for grandchildren at some point? Yeah, we're like, please, God, sometime. I, grandchildren, I have discovered, change people. Uh, when our daughter was born, Jana, she was the first grandchild on, on my side of the family. She was like 34th on Jody's side of the family. But on my side of the family, she was the first one. And my parents had gotten married later. And Jody and I got married a little bit later. And so, so they, were, they were getting up there a little bit. And they were anxious, anxious, anxious uh, to have, have grandchildren. And they were waiting when Jody was pregnant. We kind of called them, you know, going into labor. And, and then again, she did it overnight. And, and uh, the next morning she had Jana. And, and things are kind of going on. And I remember finally calling my mom and dad and saying, hey, Jen is here. And they're like, cool, we're coming. We're on our way. And they lived in Aberdeen, and we were in Nampa, Idaho. And it's about a 12-hour drive from, from one place to the other there. Uh, and, and most of my life growing up, they would stop halfway and get a hotel. They did not stop halfway and get a hotel that day, okay? They, they drove, uh, my dad set like the Worldland speed record from Aberdeen, Washington to Nampa, Idaho, you know? They, you know and I, I remember mom coming up to the door, getting out of the car, you know, and they're coming up to the door. We were home by that time and uh, and the knock on the door and I, I was all ready for the ritual of, of greeting my mother at the door because we didn't get to see each other all that long normally she'd greet me and and she'd say something to me and she'd give me a hug and give me a kiss you know there's that nice healthy father you know or mother son kind of relationship but this time was a little bit different instead of a hug and a kiss I got a body check to the chest back up against the wall. Where's Jana? You know, in there and around the corners. Well, good to see you too, mom. You know, glad. Something about that. There's something powerful uh, about all that. And, and I'll tell you, Jody and I have loved every single stage of, of parenting. We recognize, I hope you recognize that your children are God's greatest gift to you. And they're also the most important legacy. In fact, I believe that the most important hero you make is your child. We talked about being hero makers, making someone else the hero, and it's your child or your grandchild. And what I'm going to talk about today applies to grandparents as well. You have an important role, biblically, you have an important role in the life of your children and in the life of the legacy uh, that's left uh, for them. And so uh, our most important duty in life is passing the legacy baton to the next generation. Let me say this again. Our most important duty in life is passing the legacy baton to the next generation. Because if you drop the baton, nothing else in the rest of your life will seem all that important. This is the thing that, that really matters. And it's easy when you're young to, to not see that. But as you get older, as you get closer to the finish line of life, it becomes very, very important that that, that matters a lot. That, that, that what you have received from those who went before you, you pass to the next 
generation. How, how many of you have ever climbed your family tree a little bit? Any of you done any of the ancestry kind of thing, you know? Yeah, that, that's always fun. Hey, all kinds of interesting stuff up the family tree, man, you know? So uh, I've learned lots of things. Uh, how, how many of you, like me, most of your relatives are uh, pirates and scallywags, you know, kind of? That's, uh, oh, oh, wait. I'm, <laughs> you guys are all way better breeding than me, I'm telling you. It's not good on my side of the tree. You know, there's good and bad. Um, my grandfather, I've told you this before, was a railroader in North, Jamestown, North Dakota, in the, both directions. And the, the, the rumor was that he had a family on the other end of the rail line. In those days, you could do that and keep that quiet. I never quite confirmed uh, until I took a, a, a DNA test and sent it in, you know, uh, through uh, whatever the big genealogy one is. Uh, and some months later, I got a phone call that said, hi, I think we're cousins. <laughs> it's like, yep, rumor confirmed, sure enough. He had a, you know, other side. But that wasn't all that was in my, my grandfather. That's the part of the legacy I, I've rejected, okay? But there's a part of it that I've really embraced. There's a part of being a, a conductor, a part of his job was to, to have the hobos get off the train. You know how hobos would ride the trains and it was his job to go along the top and, and, and tell them to get off and, and get them off there. But, but something interesting about his, his life that was that, that he would try and do that as close to Jamestown as he could. And he'd say, you gotta get off, I gotta make you jump off here, but... Here's where I live, and their house was about two blocks from the, from the railroad tracks right there in Jamestown. If you will go here, my wife will give you a hot meal. And so my dad has memories of sitting on the back stoop of their, their house and, and having these long conversations with all these hobos that would just be out in the yard, and, and grandma was kind of serving, them, serving meals to all of them. And that's a part of the legacy I love in my family. You see, in my family, there's a legacy of service to others. I, I embrace that. My, my grandfather did it. My grandmother did it. My dad and mom were both involved in medicine. They, they did it. My, my wife was a school teacher, and now in the library, she's done it. I've become a pastor. There's, there's this wonderful legacy that's best passed down from generation to generation to generation, and now my daughter is a pastor, and my son is asking questions about how his life can be of service. I, I, there's something powerful. The baton has been passed faithfully from generation to generation to generation. And so I, I wanted this morning kind of hold on to that image of the, of the relay race. Any, any of you ever run a relay race in, in your life, like junior high, high school, that, that sort of thing? Any of you do it very well? Oh, good. I'm not alone. <laughs> I, uh, I, I did it when I was in, in, in junior high, no less, uh, going into high school. And so uh, there, there's some things we can learn about this because actually this is a, an image that's used in the New Testament and the idea is very much found in the Old Testament. And I'll show you in a little bit. And so uh, some hard truths about relay races, okay? The, the first one is this, those that start the race don't finish the race. Amen? The first person to start it is not the person that, that finishes the race. And so, so here's the truth. You cannot win the race on your own. You must depend on the generations that have come before and the generations that will, that will come after you. Those that, do not, those that start the race do not finish the race. If God has laid some great vision on your heart or something he wants to do, the high probability is it will be your children and your grandchildren that will finish that vision. That's the way God works. All through Scripture, God works. Those that start the race don't finish the race. And then, no matter how fast you run, if the baton is dropped, you lose. So remember the Olympics a few years ago? Summer Olympics, uh, probably 10 years ago. We had both the fastest boys' male relay team and the fastest women's relay team in the world. 
We were at the Olympics and we should have run away with the whole thing. We were way faster than everybody. Do you know what we won? Absolutely nothing. Do you know why? Because they dropped the baton, the men and then the women. It was so heartbreaking to be that fast. And so it didn't matter that we had the fastest people. If, if the baton doesn't get passed, you'll lose the race. In fact, one of the really crazy things about relay races is it is possible for the slowest team on the track to win the race because the faster teams drop the baton. In fact, you can look this up on YouTube. There's some crazy stuff about them and how they dropped it, and there's some memes and, and all kinds of things. that, that It's just you have to make it. If you don't pass the baton, you lose, okay? And then uh, it is the responsibility of the one with the baton to pass it on. I, uh, I did this enough to learn just a little bit uh, about it when I, was, when I was a kid growing up. And, and one of the things that happens in a relay race is as, as you're, you're getting ready to pass the baton, the person that's going to receive the baton is not looking backwards. They have to look forward, and they get down, and they get ready. And the person who's carrying the baton, as they begin to come up on them, at least the way I coach our taught it, was you yelled at them, Go! And at that point, they would start out running as fast as they could. And they, you, they took them a while to accelerate, and you're going full blast. And then as you got closer to them, what we would have to say to them is reach. And that meant they would reach back like this, and they're still looking forward, and they're still accelerating as fast as they can go. And the responsibility of the person with the baton was to put that baton in their hand, because the other person is not looking back, they're looking forward. And he told us to slap it in there as hard as we could. And it turns out that's harder than you think because their hand is going all around like this and your hand is going all around like this. And you know, you make fun of people that drop the baton. That's hard. It's hard to do when you're running full blast. But it is the responsibility of the person who holds the baton to put it in the hand of the next person in the race. Who do you think holds the baton of the gospel of Jesus Christ today? You! <laughs> Us! Me! Aren't you glad that the fifth grade class is not in charge of the church? They don't have the baton yet. We have the baton. So whose responsibility is to get it into the hand of that little fifth grader one day? Because one day, he's going to be the preacher. I know that's scary, but I was that way too when I was a fifth grader. It's the responsibility to put it in the next generation's hand. And then there's a limited time in which you can pass the baton. There's a, a passing area that you come up on. And if you pass the baton before you get into that area, you're disqualified. Or if you're trying to hit their hand and their hand's moving around and you go outside of that area, you're disqualified. If you step too far to the right and get in the other lane, you are disqualified. If you step too far to the left and get out of the lane, you are disqualified. In that area, there is a set time and the clock is ticking and it becomes such a desperate thing sometimes that people will take desperate measures. I mean, go on, go on the internet and look at the, the women's relay race. You can see them take off and she's trying to get it into the hand, but they, they, she told her to go too soon and they're, they're ahead. And finally, as she's coming up on the end of the, the passing zone, she just tosses the baton at her hand. That didn't work, by the way. Why? Because there's a, there's a time, and so too in the kingdom of God. We only have so long to pass the baton to the next generation. We're only going to live so long. And the children are only open to the message so long. We know that we have to reach them in those early children years and in the adolescent years. That's when they're open to the gospel. There's a, there's a passing zone in the kingdom of God. And then uh, great baton passes happened because the runners were intentional. 
Because they, they practiced and they practiced and they practiced. Great baton passes do not happen by accident. They don't happen thinking, yeah, yeah, okay, we love children, but, that, but that's it. We're just going to... When I was doing it as a junior higher coach would, would make us run around the track over and over again and, and you'd have the baton and I think I was second or third, I forget where I was at in the lineup, but, but I wasn't first, but the first person would pass it, you'd, you'd say to the person in front of you while you're jogging, you know, reach, and so you'd reach back and they'd slap it in your hand, you'd take it and you'd go in the other hand, you'd say go, and then you'd say reach and you'd do that and you'd go back to the first person who was the finisher and then they would flip it over backwards and you had the last person in line had to catch it, that was the idea, and then sometimes we would just circulate around, but we would go around around and around and around the track, just passing the baton, passing the baton, passing the baton, passing the baton. Because we knew that if you're going to do it well, you have to be intentional about it. You have to practice with it. And, and if we practice that much so we can pass a silly baton in junior high, how important is it that we be intentional about giving the next generation the kingdom of God? Most important thing we do, we need to be intentional. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 11. Uh, and we're going to look at God's instructions for passing the baton. This is really actually a very practical kind of uh, piece of advice here. And so I'm going to kind of walk down uh, through it uh, a little bit. And, um, and I just want to encourage you, the end of this, it's going to be very nuts and bolts about what happens in this passage. If you have time... I'd encourage you to read all of Deuteronomy chapter uh, 11, but I'm going to jump around just a little bit just in the, uh, in the um, in, in interest of time. And let me say to you, the way the Old Testament people thought about God was covenant. And covenant wasn't a contract. Covenant was a binding of hearts together. And God makes covenant with us. And so when, when, that's what marriage is. Marriage is a covenant of, of life together. And, and, and so it is with this. God is covenanted with his, with his people in this passage. And these are kind of the, the parts and pieces of, of that covenant. So uh, beginning at, at verse 1, it says, love the Lord your God. Now I want to stop right there. Say, love the Lord your God. Often I hear people say, oh, the Old Testament is all about an angry God. That is not the Old Testament. There is some of that in there, and you need to understand that culturally to understand what's going on. But from the very beginning, it has always been about loving God and loving people. It's always been about loving God and loving people. Amen. Okay, good. Uh, so love the Lord your God and keep his requirements, his decrees, his laws, his commands always. And that sounds like a bunch of rules, but that, that's actually an expression for the covenant law of God. And, and in the Old Testament, the covenant law was life-giving. It wasn't like law is today where, you know, when the red lights come on, you're in trouble kind of a deal. There was some of that, but it was also about how to live a good life, how to, how to live God's life, if you, uh, a good life if you lived God's way. Okay? Here's the important part. Remember today that your children were not the ones who saw and experienced the discipline of the Lord your God. And here's what that means. You have seen God work in ways that your children have not. You have experienced God. You've, he's been there for you in those difficult times. You've seen miracles, some of you. You've seen God work and do things in your life. Your children have not seen that. And so what you have, one of the things that you have to offer your children as legacy is the story of how God has worked in your family. The story of what God has done that is so important to them. I, I sometimes have a, have a little bit of a self-image problem with pastors because really great pastors are supposed to get saved as adults out of life of terrible, wicked sin and then they have this wonderful story of transformation. That is not my story. I was saved at the age of six from stealing cookies. I mean, it was just, I was that wild child, you know. Here's what I think I do have to offer you. I was saved at the age of six and I have walked with the Lord all of my life. 
And I've learned a few things about walking with him. And I've learned a few things about intergenerational faith. And some of the most powerful gifts to me from my family, from my dad and from my grandfather's generation, and even back into my great-grandparents' generation on my mom's side, are the stories of God's faithfulness to our family. So I think in some ways I had it easier than a lot of people. Because when Jody and I got to those hard places in our marriage where we absolutely had to trust God because we didn't have what we need and it looked like the walls were closing in, I trusted God because I'd heard my dad talk about that in his life and I'd heard my grandma talk about that in her life. I heard my mom talk about that in her life and so I trusted God. That's the gift you have. They haven't heard. Tell your children the story of what God has done. And then here's the description of that. His majesty. His mighty deeds. uh, His mighty hand. His outstretched arm. The signs he performed and the things he did. What a great God we serve. Then jumping down uh, to verse 18. Fix the words of mine. Fix my teaching on your hearts and minds. Okay? So before we get to the, the written part, he wants this to be in your heart and he wants this to be in your head. The relationship with God has always been about heart and head, okay? Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. How many have ever seen a Jew with a box on their head? That's the law of the Lord that's in there. It's a symbol that, that even today uh, observant Jews will, will do, okay? Teach them to your children. Teach them to your children. Talking about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. That's about everything you do in life. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates so that your days and the days of your children may be in the land, of the, may be in the land that the Lord swore to give to your ancestors as, as many as the days, I can't read that sentence, as many as the days that he, the heavens are above the earth. So that's the, the blessing parts of it. So here's what we know from this passage. Uh, the, hand, the handoff from one generation to the next matters a lot to God. This matters to God. This isn't just a casual thing. This is important to him. Hear me, O church. Children are a sacred trust. They do not belong to you. They belong to God. They have been placed in your care and your watch care, and you are to protect them and prepare them and hand them off for what God wants to do to them. But they are a sacred trust in your hand and in your time for a certain period of time, and then it will be over. I mean, it's really a crazy thing, this raising kids. You spend your whole life pouring yourself into them so that they can be wise and smart and independent and make good adult decisions. Then they leave and you go, wait, wait, that's not what I had in mind. You know? And so you prepare them. And so think about this from God's perspective a little bit, how important this is for us. Imagine if you took your child to a school and you dropped them off and when you came back you discovered that during that whole day that they had, they had never taught your child anything. They just sat in the corner playing. That they hadn't provided lunch for them so they were hungry. That they neglected them and didn't take care of them in any way. How would you receive that news? Oh, don't look like that. I can see some of you getting angry right now, okay? The mama bear's coming out like, I don't know. God has placed his children in your care for this lifetime, okay? Super, super important. It matters a lot to God. And then, your children are the first in line to receive your legacy, but not the last. You have a responsibility to your children first and foremost. Make sure they get taken care of, that they hear, that they know the story of God, that, they, that God loves them and that God is for them and, and all that's in, involved in that. But don't leave it there. In fact, I would argue that one of the most powerful things you can do to build legacy in your children is to build legacy in other people's children. 
Some of the most powerful things in my life growing up were some of the men in our church that invested in me. They had kids of their own, but they just cared and, and they loved on. One of the things that was always so much fun about my, my dad was my dad was the one that everybody wanted to have as a dad because he was always the one that would volunteer. When I was in scouts for a very short period of time, he was the one that would volunteer to go on the scouting trips. When, when we had things at church where we'd go and do stuff with the, with the children and even with the teens, he would volunteer to be the one that goes with them. He would go with us on hikes up into the woods. He would go with us on camping trips. He always invited all of the kids over to our house and everybody came to our house. He was always involved in our lives in volunteering and investing in the kids around his kids. And as a child, I found it terribly embarrassing. You know? How many of you have embarrassed your kids at some point in your life? How many of you have done it on purpose? Yeah, yeah, yeah. About junior high, high school, it's a really effective tool for control. I can remember looking at my kids and saying, if you do that again, I will embarrass you in front of your friends. No, 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 dad. We don't want you to do that, you know, so. But you know what I, how I reflect on it now? My dad loved me enough to be involved in my life. He loved me enough to, to leave legacy in the children around me, and I was blessed with a church that other men did that. Don't, don't let your kids be the only ones that you leave a legacy in. Get involved with kids. Get involved with teens. And if you can deal with it, get involved with middle schoolers, man. If you got that gift, that is wonderful. Because you can make a huge difference in their lives, amen? Just encourage you to get it. Okay. And then uh, one other part in this. The race isn't over until God says it's over. I know that some of you have grown children that are far from God, and it feels like you've done everything you can do, and they're not coming back, and you don't know what to do. I am here to tell you the race isn't over yet, okay? It's only over when God says it's over, and I've had the privilege of leading people to the Lord who were gone for a long time, and by then their parents were off into heaven, and the thing they always say to me is, I wish mom and dad were here to see this when I came back. And so if God doesn't answer your prayers in this lifetime, please know God's not over and it's not done till God says it's done. Keep praying for your kids who are far from God. So let's quickly, let's do God's plan for passing the baton. This is the specifics of this uh, and you can make the, adapt this to your family. Number one, create a rich environment. You notice they said to write the law of the Lord on the posts and on the house. That's that rich environment. So every time a child came in and went out of the house, they would see the, the law of, of the Lord. And, and the, the same for us, that we would create rich environments uh, for, for our children, whatever we do. Fill your home with joyful reminders of, of God's love, uh, books and wall hangings and pictures. And, and the refrigerator should be a place of all the pictures of all the good things God has done. We used to have pictures of missionaries that they were supporting and children that we had sponsored and things that God had done in the life of, of the the children. We, we, we had on our wall a, a thing that said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. When I was a teenager, I thought that was pretty hokey. And then I became an adult, and on our house was a plaque that said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Why? Because it made a deep impression on a young man. We, have a, we had a family Bible. It was this old, ugly sort of thing that had the family history in it, and it was always laying around. You're always tripping over it. And it was a constant reminder that our family was formed by the Word of God. And today I have it. Fill your house, a rich in environment with what God is doing. And then create a conversation. It says, talk with him when you walk and when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. By, basically, whenever you do anything except maybe skydiving, you're supposed to be talking about your children to God. Okay, skydiving isn't listed in there, but 
In fact, one of the things I worry about today is that we have a society where children and parents just don't get to spend enough time together. In the ancient world, when they wrote this, a little boy would grow up, and when he got to a certain age, he would join his dad in the field working. In addition to his dad, his grandfather would most likely be there, and some of his uncles would be there. And for the rest of his life, he would work with people who were his mentors and who talked to him, and they would have all kinds of conversations about God and about life and about all of those sorts of things. Unfortunately, we lived in a society where very few of us can take our children to work, unless you're a farmer. So we have to be intentional. Children need more than quality time. They also need quantities of time. I know that's counter to the culture, but I'm telling you, there's no more important way to spend your time than with your spouse and with your children. Some of you are convinced there's more, no more important time than the time you spend with your spouse and with your children. Amen? Okay. So create a, create a conversation. Talk with them about, uh, about God. That's the opportunity to, to have all of the, the questions answered and the, the things that go on. And by the way, as they get older, don't answer their questions. Ask them, so why do you think that? You'll be amazed at what you get out. Ask questions of them. And then um, tell stories because they engage the heart. Stories vastly more powerful than rules. Uh, and and, and I, I think we've lost the art of storytelling. And I, I remember as a, a child in that little church, hearing the, the men in the church tell stories after church. And, and they would talk and then they would laugh and they would laugh so loud you could just hear it all over the place. And the women would make fun of them. You know, all oh, the guys, you know. But as a little guy, I would often stand a few feet off and just listen to them tell the stories. I listened to them tell stories about how God had worked in theirs. I listened to them tell stories about fishing. Wow, did we have fishing stories in that church. I listened to them tell stories about their relationships with their, with their spouses. I listened to them tell stories about what was going on. And it was deeply formational for me. And my dad would tell me the stories of my family. The only reason I know about what my grandfather did was because my dad told me the story. And you've heard from me. I've told you the stories about my grandfather. You have stories. That's what it said in the scripture. Your children have not seen how God has worked in your family. Make sure you tell your children the story of what God is doing in, in your, your life. And, and grandparents, I believe that you are the chief storytellers in your family. Nobody can tell a story like a grandparent can. It's so, so powerful. You've heard me say this before. But it just, for me, it just gets it. My son was really little. My mom was old. He would spend time with her. She would take care of him during the day. Uh, and, and one day, uh, she had drug him out and had him picking, picking weeds in the garden and said, why do we have weeds, Grandma? Well, because they blew in from across the street. Well, why did it blow in from across the street? Well, seeds are little and the wind can catch them. Well, why did the seeds go da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da? Finally, she got to the very end after about an hour and said, because Adam and Eve sinned. That's why we have weeds, you know. <laughs> Fall a man, we got weeds, I don't, you know. Only a grandparent can take that kind of time to be with a guy and talk the way, all the way through that. Tell the stories. And, and then uh, create ritual because it penetrates the soul. There's something about ritual that we know goes deep in our soul. In fact, high-end athletes have learned, and the science now shows this, that if they rehearse something in their mind, it's sometimes more effective than actually doing it physically. There's something very powerful about that ritual of rehearsing it. You'll see baseball players go through a ritual. It, it, it prepares them. And, and I think in the evangelical 
evangelical church, we've lost that ritual, and that's really unfortunate in some ways. Most of you, in fact, believe in ritual, even if you don't think you believe in ritual. In fact, if you've been married very long and you have a good marriage, I pretty much guarantee you believe in some sort of ritual. One of the rituals that is a part of our house that comes from my dad, because my dad, like, my dad was like, dude, you married way ahead of what you should have. You need to take care of this woman, okay, because you're out of your league. And so one of the things he encouraged me to do is I try never to leave the house without saying to Jody, I love you. Kiss her usually before I go. Before we go to bed at night, I say, I love you. During the day, I say, it's a ritual. And you would think it would get less powerful over time, but it's just the opposite. It gets more powerful over time. I mean, what I said when I, I love you when I was 30 is nothing as powerful as what I say now at this stage, as old as I am at this point. When I say I love you, I have a deep, deep understanding of what, what that means today. I believe in the ritual. You guys have bedtime rituals with your kids. One of my bedtime rituals with my kids was, who loves you? You do. Part of the ritual. Family meals, the ritual. By the way, and all teens, just don't listen for a minute, but mom and dad, make them put down the screens for, for meals. Talk. Talk to one another, okay? Communion is a ritual. It's why we let families and children take communion together, because you'll take that and you'll dip it together and we'll say, the blood of Christ which was shed for you. Powerful, formational for the kid. It's why we have children involved in helping to serve. You know what it is for a child to grow up saying to adults, the body of Christ which was broken for you. Ritual, there's something about that that just penetrates uh, the soul. And then deploy symbols because they incarnate truth. There's something powerful about a symbol that helps us to remember the whole story in a moment. How many of you have knickknacks in your home in some sort of way? Out of you? Why, why do you have knickknacks? Memory? Yeah, that's good. Eight o'clock service, someone said, because my wife makes me. So I don't know why you have knickknacks, but here's why we have knickknacks in our house. Each one of them represents a memory. When we go on vacation, we, we used to buy little stuff, and then we learned that we net less little stuff and like buy one nice thing from the vacation. And I can look back at those, and I can remember the vacation and what we did and where we went, and it has become a symbol that, that in that one little thing, it just tells the whole story of, that, that, of our relationship and of our lives together and of that vacation. Symbols are, are like that. One of the most powerful things I've ever gotten onto, I think, was symbols. Was somewhere back in seminary, someone encouraged me to have couples, when I marry them, take communion together. And I asked them to go out and to buy a chalice, that thing that we put, and they'll buy a nice chalice together. And then we will use it for their communion. They'll take the bread and then they'll share the chalice. They'll have a shared, a shared cup in that moment. Each of them drinks out of it. And then afterwards, I asked them to take this home and put it on a mantle someplace as a reminder that they had made covenant with God and with one another. And for the rest of their lives, that represents that moment. One day, they explain that chalice to their children powerful things that happen. Build symbols into your lives. And then finally, if our musicians would come, start passing the baton now and don't stop until God stops you. And you know how you know when God stops you? Pastor Dennis or I has a little ceremony for you and everybody <laughs> cries. That's how you know when God stops you, you know. Start passing the baton because we want to be a church that tells the next generation, amen. It starts with your kids, but don't let it in there. Children are a sacred trust. Let me pray for you. If our musicians would come, let me pray for you, uh, and then we're going to worship the Lord in giving. Father God, Lord, this really, really, really matters. 
that our children get it, that our children embrace the faith, that our children, not only the, the faith, Father, but, but all the good things that come from our family, that we might put them into our children's life, that they might better be who you made them to be, Father. I pray that you would give us hearts for, for legacy, for, for leaving the next generation to, to be prepared for what is to come to them, Father, for we are remind, mindful that, that the clock is ticking, that we are in the passing zone, and that one day that little fifth grader is going to be the pastor of this church, and we're going to be gone or at the, the other end of it, Father. So I pray that you would make us faithful and effective at leaving a legacy that blesses and guides the next generation to your glory and to your honor. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.